Project Zion Podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts the Restoration offers for today's world. We aim to feature a wide variety of guests and panelists with roots in the Restoration tradition from Community of Christ and our friends in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music has been provided by Mark Abernathy. You can find his music at www.mark-abernathy.com. And welcome to another episode of the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Katie Langston, and I am very excited about the podcast that we have coming to you today. Um, I am joined by two wonderful guests, John and Monica English, and they are going to talk about how to navigate uh, marriage um, from an interfaith perspective, particularly when... They both come from an LDS background and the marriage started as very much a, you know, fairly traditional LDS marriage. Uh, and then Monica, um, moved toward community of Christ. And so we're going to just be discussing how they navigate that. Um, and maybe what we know that there are many listeners in the audience who may be in similar situations, whether or not they're headed toward community of Christ, but certainly in situations where one person has had um, a crisis of faith, uh, a shift in the way they relate to their faith, perhaps a loss of belief, while the other spouse um, remains an active Mormon, and that can be super challenging. So we're just going to talk a little bit about how to come through that and um, and maintain a positive and healthy marriage. So Welcome to John and Monica. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you. It's it's a joy to have you here. Now, um, typically at this point in the episode, we'd ask you to do like a short little introduction about yourselves, but actually we're going to dive in even deeper than that, <laughs> get kind of your life story. So uh, we'll maybe skip the short introduction and, and sort of just take it from the top. So um, we'll start with Monica. Monica, why don't you um, talk to us just a little bit about uh, your upbringing, where you grew up, and maybe walk us up through, oh, I don't know, say you know, graduating from high school. Okay. I um, was born in Provo, Utah, and have spent most of my um, life in Utah County. Um, I was born to a family that on both sides has generations of Mormons all the way back to Joseph Smith. Um, Jedediah Morgan Grant was my many great grandfather um, among among others. Um, so I, I had the typical Mormon upbringing in a Utah centric kind of way. Um, so I was baptized at age eight. Um, I'm the oldest of five children. I, I have three younger sisters and one younger brother. Um, so my, my mom was a stay at home mom. Mm-hmm. My 
dad um, had a law publishing business. Um, we had all of the typical experiences growing up. I was in Young Women's. I earned my Beehive medallion, but I didn't go go on to earn the other medallions. It just wasn't all that important to me. A rebel from a young age. I know. <laughs> Um, and I, I kind of feel like I was. I, I grew up in a home with a mother who was involved in the feminist Mormon movement of the 80s. Um, wow. And so she um, had was, was involved in the listserv that was going on at that point. She um, talks about experiences going to um, going back east to gatherings of um feminist Mormons with people like Maxine Hanks. And so I grew up with the with feminist values without knowing it, because my mother didn't talk all that much to me about the issues that she had with the church. I knew that there were things that bothered her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember asking about those things and her saying, I don't want my problems to become your problems. And so I don't want to talk about it. Um, which was um, kind of a, a rough way to experience um, a, a feminist movement or a feminist understanding because, like, for example, I remember um, in, in Ward Conference the names of the young men leaders being read from the stand for sustaining and then the the names of the young women were not read because we didn't hold the priesthood. Um, and I remember my mother getting angry and standing up and walking out. And I thought, oh, okay. And then I stood up and walked out with her, even though it you know it wasn't my thing. But she didn't talk very much about it. We didn't talk about those concerns that she had until um, I was an adult. Uh, and do you think that had something to do with the way your your dad felt about things and she didn't want to step on his toes? Or was it really that she had a testimony of the LDS church and didn't want to, you know, even though she had her own concerns, she didn't want to yeah. plant them in you? Or what, what do you think was behind My- her? kind of silence around the issues. My father had his own issues with the church. They both were were very active, um, mm-hmm. but had concerns the whole time I was growing up that they didn't necessarily share. So hmm. her her um, concern was, was that she wanted me to have uh, my own testimony. She wanted me to believe, possibly even in a way that she wasn't believing herself, um, I, I remember sitting, I remember talking to her, um, about faith and feeling like I didn't have, um, that deep belief or faith that I really wanted to have. And I remember her pulling out the, the Book of Mormon passage that says that faith is to hope for things that are unseen and you now offering me that as a, as kind of a bridge. So it was, it was a, conflicted upbringing I think in when mm. it came when it came to faith now by the time I hit about 19 or 20 I was a firm believer I'd found my testimony I'd found my place I I was I was in a a good place when it came to the LDS church when when John and I met and had 
did you look down on your parents then for their doubts or was it even was it still more nuanced than than that at that age? Um, it was it, it wasn't that I looked down. I never looked down on them, mm-hmm. but I remember feeling pained that mm-hmm. um, I felt they were missing out on on the joy that that the LDS church could bring on on missing out on on the happiness and that that hope and that um future and it it wasn't my my parents actually they they did leave the church but it wasn't until I was an adult and I was out um of the house and mm-hmm. married to my husband but for for many years there there were now I'd, I'd see things and think I wish I could help them come back to the church and I would pray for them and hope and cry sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah. How did you how did you gain your testimony and what was it centered on? Oh boy, that's that's a really tricky question. I feel like my um my testimony was always kind of up and down and there were times um, and it wasn't necessarily, um, th- there's no way for me to pinpoint what was going on when things felt really good and like they were mm-hmm. clicking other than, you know, I'd have, um, I had some beautiful experiences at girls camp, um, in testimony meetings and, um, spiritual experiences, uh, prayers that had beautiful answers, um, for me. Um, one, one of my favorite childhood, um, memories of faith was, it happened when I was about 13 years old, uh, and my father was in the state legislature at that point and had, had a, had a spiritual experience that led him to meet up with, um, a man from the Ute tribe who became a very good family friend of ours. Um, and my father shared the spiritual experience that led him to choose to go to the meeting where they met. But when I spoke with Larry, this gentleman, um, he talked about his own faith experience that led him to meet and be open to um, a relationship and a friendship with my father. And they were very different. My father's spiritual experience came in the burning of the bosom and he was driving down a road and really felt like he needed to turn around and pack a bag and head to Roosevelt, Utah. Um, and that's the way his spiritual experience came. Larry's spiritual experience came in a very traditional um, way for Na- Native American way. He talked about um, his ancestors appearing to him as as small Indian um, men who then expressed that he was going to meet somebody that that would be able to be influential. Um, Their relationship would be influential in um, in their lives. And that was profound to me as a young child to be able to recognize that spiritual experiences could come in different ways that God could speak in different spiritual languages and depending on how people could hear, which also gave me permission, I think, to really seek out God Mm -hmm. um, through prayer and through scripture study. And um, I, I read the Book of Mormon 
couple of times as a child and a couple of times as an adult and took the challenge to heart to to pray and ask if it was true and and felt and um, felt good about those answers so you had a sense of so you had a sense of god working in real and profound ways from the time you were young thanks to these experiences that you witnessed and that really gave you permission to seek after God. And then as you grew, yeah. it, you you did that seeking within the context of the LDS faith and, yeah. and really kind of established a testimony that way. Is that kind of what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Right. Cool. John, we'll go to you next. Talk talk a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you grow up, and uh, was your family LDS? Were they active? And and just share a little bit about your about your background with your faith in particular. Okay. Well, I was born in California. Um, my mom was a convert, and my dad's ancestors go back to the beginning of the church. I'm a direct descendant of John Tanner, who was big in helping the church survive financially, and his son-in-law is a mass lineman who became an apostle. I also come through him. Um, my mom had joined the church a year or two before she met my dad. We moved to Utah when I was four, and so I was, you know, very insulated in the Utah world. Mormonism was just the way things were. We moved to Texas when I was eight, and that kind of opened me up to how other people saw the world and how different things could be. Uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. I've also lived in Washington and Idaho and Wyoming. So all over the uh, place. All over the place. Um, my parents were very faithful. My mom was really good about um, educating us. I had, you know, coloring books from the Bible and Book of Mormon. And My parents divorced when I was 10. My mom died when I was 11. My dad remarried a woman who was uh, not as faithful in the church. She was a recent convert, but she was, um, I don't even know what to say about her. <laughs> she was an evil person. She was secretly alcoholic and pretty mm-hmm. sure she was bipolar and narcissistic. And she uh, she pretty much ruled the house. And my dad just did whatever she wanted and... You know, she, I don't know. It was. She just, she had a lot of problems. She had a lot of problems. Probably make a good book someday. <laughs> but, um. I'm not laughing because it's. Oh, I know. Like, good or anything she like that. She wanted us but. to explore other avenues, but it was a lot of new age stuff, meditation. Um. I remember her giving me one book all about finding your third eye. Um, she thought she could read tea leaves and palms and tarot cards. and She gave me a couple anti-Mormon books when I was 14, and my dad was really huh. nervous about it. But, but, but she was, the... did she still uh, claim Mormonism, or had, yeah. she, had she pretty much moved on by then? No, we, we still claimed it, and we still went to church almost every week, even though deep inside she wasn't really too happy about it. Sure. And... Um, she was very good at putting on a positive public face. And we were all scared of her. She was pretty abusive, too. Um, 
So very complicated. Just a very that must have created a very complicated sense about faith and and you know about what it's all about. I'm sure. Yeah, although I will say my faith sustained me through those years. I had such a good foundation from my mom that no matter how bad it got under my stepmom, I still believed Heavenly Father was out there even though he was letting us go through some horrible things at this time. Mm, wow. And so I ran away when I was 15 to move in with my aunt and uncle, mm-hmm. and they were active in the church. And then I felt like I was finally able to be myself again and live my own life. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, my sister ran away a few months later, and eventually my aunt and uncle adopted all seven of us kids. Wow. They had seven kids of their own, so then I became the oldest of 14. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? When I was adopted? Oh, I was eight. Uh-huh. I was eight, wow. I was 18, but my youngest brother was 10 years younger than me. Um, My mom had seven kids in 10 years, and then she died. So it was the seven of us, you know, (laughs) suddenly in that situation. And then for my dad to marry my stepmom, it just made it really difficult. But we eventually moved in with my aunt and uncle and their saints, and they adopted all of us. And so now we have this big family. And I was back in the church, and I, you know, eventually did a mission and Mm -hmm. came home. And Monica... Where did you serve? I created a temple and went from there. I served in Seattle. Okay. And was it a good experience? Yeah, it was great. Um, I, uh, I kind of told myself that if I was going to do a mission, if I can get through the three weeks of the MTC, I can get through three weeks in the mission field. And it was, it was, <laughs> that's a good way to take it. <laughs> yeah, I, it was a real leap of faith. It was just a matter of, I'm really nervous about this and I'm not sure if I can do it, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And yeah, it was a great experience. Wonderful. So then you went on a mission and and then you came home and and where did you go to school? I uh, went to UVU. Okay. Um, and Monica, where were you? Um I I was at Utah Valley University too. Okay. So Monica share share about sort of meeting John and anything else that happened during that period of time that might be important. Okay. It, we we have kind of a funny meeting story because John remembers meeting me years before I remember meeting him. Oh, <laughs> we uh, we had the same group of friends at um, at UVU at college, um, and we remember the same events and um, can can list uh, mutual friends that we had. And John remembers me from that period, and I don't. <laughs> And he, um, <laughs> after that period, he went on his mission, um, and I, uh, met someone else and I married someone else and it was a very short-lived marriage. Um, we divorced and I had a, so when John and I met again, mm-hmm. um, after his mission, I had a young son who was almost a year. Mm-hmm. Um, from my first marriage, but we, uh, we came to work at the same company, um, for a company that, uh, put out phone books and I proofread ads and John, uh, designed the ads. 
and, and a copywriter and a designer, a match made in heaven. <laughs> match made in heaven, yes. Uh, we actually um, were set up by a friend um, who who was also a, a worker at the same place. Um, I was my birthday was coming up, and I didn't have anything planned. And this mutual friend of ours uh, caught John walking through the hall and said, "Hey, John, come here. Ask Monica out for her birthday." And John came <laughs> in and said. Okay, you want to go out for your birthday? <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Oh. Wow. So just to get the timeline clear, so you went to school and you met John, even though you don't remember it, but John does. Yep. And then John went on his mission, and 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 in the span of John's mission, you married and divorced and had a child. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, wow. there was there was a little time after he came home off his mm-hmm. mission. I was dating somebody else, and we worked at the same place for a while before we connected up. But pretty much, yeah, my my oldest son was born while Ethan or while John was on his mission. Wow, and John. So does I mean does that does that story ring true to you? I know that my husband and I have slightly different versions of our meeting story, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much it. I just remember walking in the room when our friend was talking to her about, man, if I wasn't dating someone, I'd ask you out on your birthday. And then as soon as he saw me, he went, hey, John. And so I just did. <laughs> and and I mean, had you had you been interested in her before? Or was it yeah. was it really just sort of? Oh, okay, no, I, okay. <laughs> I, I liked her. I thought she was cute. I don't think I ever would have gotten the courage to ask her out because she's uh-huh. a single mom. Right. But, you know, we went out and I, I, I'd had my own dating stuff. I mean, I had a girlfriend, my home mission. We broke up two months after I got home and I had just, uh, broken up with my last girlfriend and was kind of tired of dating for dating's sake. Right. Yes. What was really nice on our first date was the girl I'd been dating right before us. It had been really hard to keep a conversation alive. And we went out, we we clicked right away and talked all night, and it was great. That's cool. So so you went on the date, and that was it? You you knew that it was meant to be, or or was was there more to it than that before you found yourselves (laughs) (laughs) getting married? I did. (laughs) By about our third date, I, I was... I was ready to marry him. I, I, in fact, I made the mistake of actually saying something about falling in love with John probably way too early. <laughs> um, it, it became complicated just because John had a complicated step relationship growing up. Right. Um, becoming a step father, um, mm. was, it, there, there were lots of, um, I vowed I would never be a step parent. Yeah. 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 And one thing that John and I um, did during our dating time and early marriage that I think really uh, helped our relationship along was that when things got really hard to talk about, we would stop talking and we would go home to our separate houses and we would email long sought out emails. Um, and so uh, discussions about what it meant to what what I saw as his role in my son's life um, about what whether or not the understanding of step parenting was was going to be the way 
um, that John perceived it, those, those deep conversations about, um, about marriage, about temple marriage, a lot of them happened in writing, in emails. Oh, it just gave you a little bit more dis, more space, I guess, to think through what you really wanted to say and be, communicate in a way that was clear for both of you, yes. it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So you, um, so you dated for how long before you got married? We dated for about seven, eight months, and then I proposed and we got married three months later. Okay. Wow. So, and then you were married in the temple, right? Mm-hmm. We were in the Salt Lake Temple where my grandparents were married. Wonderful. Um, and so you were married in the in the Salt Lake Temple and began your lives as pretty, you know, traditionally believing active LDS folks. Is that is that right? Yes, yep. very much so. Okay. So, John, why don't you share a little bit about um, kind of your faith up until maybe the point of um, Monica's faith transition, and then Monica, you can you can share and then go into your faith transition. Okay. Uh, I don't know. As far as our church life went, I thought we were doing the normal thing. Um, when we had a daughter be diagnosed with SMA, it kind of rocked our world. But we also felt like um, God was very close for us to help us through these hard times. So just um, clarification on that. we uh, yeah. Our third... So we had um, our third child was a girl, Talia, and mm-hmm. she had, was diagnosed with a terminal condition called spinal muscular atrophy um, when she was just a few months old. And was uh, we were told that kids with this particular condition typically die by the time they're a year or, or maybe two. Um, wow. Very medically fragile. She needed ventilatory support. She had a G tube. She was in a wheelchair. Um, her, her brain, her, and, and, um, personality weren't affected. So she was this bright, amazing young lady in a very, very broken body where she couldn't lift her wrists off of, um, off of the armrests or, uh, support her own head. Um, but she was, she was a delight. So mm. that, that, um, for me, um, I described my experience parenting her. We had lots of really amazing um, God-touched experiences during her life, and it just felt like there were angels flocking around her everywhere she was. And because we were with her, it felt to us like there were that if we turned around fast enough, we could see God. Like like it was it was so close and beautiful um to be her her mom and dad so sorry to take over john go ahead yeah um so she was born in year 2000 she died in 2004 and we had this big gap in our family uh, Mm. because we now had what six or seven years between our two kids we had our two oldest, and then we had Talia, and then we had our next son, and he was 10 months old when she died, and so we suddenly had this big gap. We wound up looking into adoption, and so we adopted 
adopted two more kids. And right after we adopted them, Monica got pregnant again. And we had, I'm trying to remember, Jackson was born in that time. Um, It took us about two years to finally adopt some kids from when we had started the process. And we had kind of thought we would be done trying to make our own kids because SMA, when both parents have it, um, you have a one in four chance. Uh-huh. Um, but then she was pregnant with Tabitha and she had SMA as well. Mm-hmm. And we thought that there had been advances in medicine and therapies and we thought we would be able to help her live longer, but she got weak pretty fast. Um, she got a trach when she was about a year and a half. Um, she did live longer. She lived until she was five. Mm-hmm. Um, her experience I felt was different than Talia's in that I felt like with Talia's we were getting a lot of heavenly help. And with Tabitha, I didn't feel that same thing. And I think I kind of expected to, Mm. but it it felt more like God was saying, you got to do this on your own, which was kind of strange, but that's just kind of the way it, it felt like. And, um, when Tabitha was still alive, um, Monica and I went out once and Monica just let me know that she had been having these problems and that she just didn't want to go to church anymore. Mm. And I just couldn't believe that. I, di- I didn't know how to deal with that. And I just thought of, you know, this is up, up until that point, I just thought we had the best marriage. And with that, it was like, you know, I know a lot of people who get divorced when one of them leaves the church, and it was a very scary thought because, okay, if she leaves the church, then what? Yeah. Um, but Tabitha died like three months later, and so she just kind of put it on her own shelf for another uh, year or so, and then, well, you want to take it from there? Yeah, let me, yeah, what? What was going on, Monica? What were you what were you thinking and, and what were your what were your doubts and concerns about? So John was right and I had the same um the same sense with, with Talia that, that there were just angels. Um during her whole life during the whole experience and I remember after she died a couple of months after she passed, feeling like, oh, that that sense of being carried is not here anymore. Um, I uh, when our, our Tabitha was diagnosed prenatally, um, so we knew before she was even born that she was going to be born severely compromised. Um, and the thing that got me through was knowing that even though she was going to be so compromised, the angels would be back and we would have that experience again um, and that we would be carried through whatever we were asked to mm-hmm. um, to face. And yet she was born and there were no angels, um, or at least none that none that I could sense. And it was a very desperate feeling um, to be to be holding a child that I knew was going to die um, and to be able to work through the experience of um, bonding with a child you know you're going to lose 
Uh, and those, those years were really hard. And I remember doing everything I thought I could to get God to speak to me. It, it felt like there was cotton in my ears. Like I kind of knew God was there, but it was, it was kind of like that, that Snoopy, the, the adults in, in the Snoopy cartoon, you know, wah, 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 rather than real words. Huh. huh. Um, and so I did what I'd been told I should do and what everybody suggested I should do, which is I prayed more. I read my scriptures more. I opened, you know, I, I was at church every week. I threw myself into callings and service and, um, needed to know that God was there. And, um, it was like I was running up against a brick wall that I could see other people, um, could pass easily, but, but for me, I'd come up to this place and I'd run smack dab into this brick wall and try to do better and um, more so that God would love me, so that God could talk to me. So because if now I'd heard over and over again that if if you're trying to communicate with God and it's not working, you know whose side the problem was on. So it was definitely on mine. I was not. Right. You now I felt like I wasn't doing something good enough. And Mm -hmm. so I desperately tried to be good enough, um, for, um, for years. She, Tabitha lived until five, five years old. Um, and for most of those years, I was desperately seeking God and, and not finding the connection I wanted to, um, until it became so painful that, um, I decided, um, I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and that's when I took, I said, John, I need to talk to you about some things. And we went out to dinner and I, um, told him that I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do church. Um, there, there were other issues all wrapped up in it. The, the treatment of the LGBT community, um, was very heavy on my heart, but what it came down to was, um, I didn't know how to uh, marry what was happening within my conscience with what was what the prophet was saying and trying to resolve my conscience saying something different than the prophet was was a vibration that within me that was so badly out of alignment that I couldn't I couldn't take it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I stopped going to church for a very short time, um, until Tabitha passed away and when and she passed away, uh, and it was, um, I mean, we knew she had a terminal condition, but, uh, she went into the hospital and got very sick while in the hospital and died 10 days later. Um, so it wasn't, it was sudden and it wasn't. But when, when she passed away, I knew it wasn't the right time to shake up my family. Um, sure. And so I continued to attend church for the next couple of years with no belief. Um, wow. In fact, within, within that period, um, I lost, I lost all belief. Um, mm-hmm. I was secretly reading books about being a good atheist. I didn't want John to know I was scared of him knowing what would he think of me how would it affect our marriage um i read books on how how to raise children with moral values without a belief in god um 
and came to a peace with that, actually, with, with that place, with, with the recognition that maybe there is no God and I, I could survive. Uh, Which is actually, in a way, I mean, in my own experience, not to interject that, but in my own experience, that is super freeing and actually then can lead you into a deeper faith and a deeper relationship with God. But first you have to, first you have to be brave enough to let the possibility of God's non-existence be there before you can actually really, truly, freely choose belief. Yes. Perhaps. Yeah. In some ways. It felt almost like that scene in Indiana Jones where he's staring across this, um, this space with no support Uh and has to choose to step. um, Yeah. And only after, you know, closing his eyes and, and committing himself to, uh, plunging to his death. Certain death. Yes. <laughs> discovers <laughs> right. that there is that there is a a small but supportive bridge. Right. Huh. So, um wow, so so much, so much going on at that point in your life, uh spiritually, emotionally with your daughter. I can just imagine that that was a a period of tremendous upheaval. Tremendous. Yes. Tremendous upheaval. That that is absolutely absolutely accurate. Um, I uh, I actually part of my uh, guidance back into uh, even the possibility of God was um, reading a book uh, with interviews of excommunicated Latter Day Saints. <laughs> Really? Yes. Um, a book, what what book was that? Latter Day Descent. It's huh. interviews with I think it's five of the six September six, uh-huh. and a couple of others. Um, so reading about Mike Quinn mm. and Paul Toscano and Margaret Toscano's experiences, Maxine Hanks, um, their experiences being deeply and profoundly. Um, in a place of faith and belief and desire to further further the gospel and the church at the time that they were severed from um now the organizational body yeah uh, was really powerful to me in in separating um a belief in god from a, an organization you need to send uh you need to send the folks in Salt Lake City an email and be like, "Look, you guys, these guys that you excommunicated actually brought back my faith." Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's fascinating. Uh John, throughout all of this kind of how were I mean, did you know it? Monica said she was kind of trying to keep it from you that she'd lost like all her faith in God and that her faith was undergoing such a transition. Were you aware of how much upheaval was going on in her paradigm or yeah did you were you so caught up with your own experiences you know with your daughter and all that that you didn't have the bandwidth to take that on or share just a little bit about what was going on with you at that time um i know she i knew she was going through some of that i didn't really um you know she's buying a ton of books like 
I'm trying to remember what some of the titles were. Parenting Beyond Belief. Uh-huh. Um, she bought one about one she did that was like parenting. If one of them's an atheist, I can't remember all the. She got like fifteen or twenty books on stuff like this. And wow. you know, I knew that was going on, and yet I didn't really want to deal with it because there's just no. I just couldn't comprehend the future being like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really when she started taking interest in Community of Christ and going to Community of Christ that it became real. She was like, I'm going to go to both of them. Huh. And she did. She went to both of them because our church was in the afternoon and hers was in the morning, so she could. Yep. But when the end of 2014 came and the time change came, Game. The churches were at the same time, and so that was do or die time. It was like, okay, huh. these few months, this is the LDS church's last chance to convince her to pick <laughs> us. And, you know, she didn't. And so, and so from then we were separated. And uh, separated also, in our religious beliefs, our not. Religion. Right, right, right. Yes, yes, right. Well, okay. and, and hey, hold that thought, John. So, Monica, talk, talk a little bit about, so you. Red Latter-day Descent, and you were like, well, maybe this God thing after all. But, like, how did you get how did you get uh, tuned into Community of Christ, and what made you decide to take a chance and start attending there? Well, I, um, I, <laughs> I had avoided ever throughout, from, from the time I was a child, learning too much about Joseph Smith. Because I think I knew Wise that I was going to have, <laughs> I was going to have every real problems. <laughs> and I should say, my my <laughs> uncle is Todd Compton, who wrote a book. Oh, uh-huh. on the yeah on the um, plural wives of Joseph Smith, and so I remember, oh. yeah, I remember going yeah. through. Um, family, going to family gatherings and Todd had come in. He was living in California at the time and, and everybody had kind of gathered around and what did you learn? Um, he had, um, some pretty, pretty amazing access to journals. And so I remember those, those conversations happening when I was, when I was younger and in my twenties. And so I was, I was aware enough that I knew I was going to have a problem with brother Joseph (laughs) and, and some of his, um, some of his choices, shenanigans, um, shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> and when, when this, when, when the ultimate crisis of my faith happened and I started, um, kind of, uh, clawing back up, I decided I really did need to, um, understand Joseph Smith better. Huh. Um, and huh. what I found was, my bar for Joseph Smith was so low that when I started actually reading about the things that are questionable to other people, for me, I found all of these things that really were interesting and amazing. And, uh, and, and so I kind of came to a peace with Joseph. Um, What I didn't realize was how much I was going to have a problem with Brigham Young. Um, and a lot of the things that he yes. did. So I was in this period of um, deep study in um, church history and uh, decided to go to Sunstone um, for my first time ever. It was um, frightening because for me, 
Sunstone was for people who were on the edge of leaving the church, but I also was fascinated by the things that I was learning and wanted to learn more. Mm-hmm. So I attended Sunstone that year in 2014. And as part of that experience, um, the Salt Lake congregation was passing out um, open house information um, for that Sunday uh, at the Salt Lake City Congregation of Community of Christ. And I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe this, you know, I can't do the LDS church anymore. Um, but John, that's where he's settled. Maybe this would be a nice middle ground. I have since learned that that is not the case. <laughs> not- Wait, so you, you thought that maybe it would be a nice middle ground or John, John said it might be a nice middle ground. Say, I, say I that again. Was. Yeah, I thought it. Maybe- well, you thought, you thought, well, maybe or, this would be a yeah. nice middle ground, but, but no, no that was, <laughs> it's, that is it's, false. Yes, Got it. It's a, it's, a very, um, and I think it was actually easier for me to just be non-believing than it was for yeah. me to be interested in another church. So um, that that first week at Community of Christ, I was served communion by a woman, which mm-hmm. was a beautiful and powerful experience for me. Um, we sang the song um, "For Everyone Born a Place at the Table." Um, with words that spoke to my heart. Um, I had a beautiful, deep spiritual experience. I would have still called myself an atheist at that point. Um, but I knew that, that I, I was having a, a beautiful experience in a place that recognized, um, the worth of all people in a way that I had never considered before. Um, I continued going, like John said, I'd, I'd go to community of Christ in the morning and the LDS church in the afternoon. So I was getting five hours of church <laughs> every day. You were for not those. kidding around. No. That's hardcore. <laughs> yeah. For about six months. Um, and in that time, some of the things that had bothered me, I decided I was going to actually speak out loud in community of Christ and let the chips fall as they may. Um, mm. Things like sometimes I pray um, to mother God and I waited for the backlash. I said it right out loud in Sunday school. And all I got were people saying, yeah, sometimes I have, I have felt that beautiful feminine quality of God as well. Or, uh, or I said, I said right out loud in community of Christ. Sometimes I don't believe in God at all. And, um, you know, someone in the, in the class said something like, well, aren't we glad you're here? Your perspective will be really interesting. (laughs) And, um, so instead of keeping all of these things that I thought would, um, ostracize me from my former faith community, I was speaking them out loud and still being embraced. Um, and I really could come as I was, uh, with all of my brokenness, all of my flaws, um, all of my disbelief, um, and was still welcomed in a way that was so beautiful. Um, there, there was one Sunday, um, as John was talking about, you know, this is our last chance. There was, there was one week where I had, it was actually the week I had talked about Heavenly Mother in Sunday school, a community of Christ and came away feeling so empowered and, and strong. And then I came to um, my ward meetings and I had told John, I'm going to go to Relief Society. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give it another shot. 
Because the truth is, it would have been so much easier to be able to make it work in the same faith as my husband. And that was my deepest desire was that if I could make it work in the same faith as my husband, I wanted it to. And I went to Relief Society that week and it was on priesthood. Um, Um, And there was a lot of gender talk. um, And there was... uh, there were some comments made that were very disparaging to the ordained women group who had um, asked for entrance into the priesthood meeting mm-hmm. um, at the most recent general conference and, um, and really disparaging comments. And I raised my hand and with tears streaming down my face said um, that I wasn't part of ordained women. That wasn't really my issue. I hadn't ever participated in any of the actions, but I understood um, having a spiritual experience or an answer to prayer that was different from from that which the prophet spoke from the pulpit. Um, and I, I said also, um, blacks didn't receive the priesthood without agitation either. And you would have thought <laughs> that mm-hmm. I'd grown three heads. Um, everybody went completely silent and then people started whispering in the classroom the lady next to me put her arm around me and said honey we don't say things like that here I've learned I just take those comments to my therapist (laughs) whoa yeah it was it was heartbreaking but you know what was even more heartbreaking to me and and um discouraging was that after that meeting not in the meeting in the meeting all of the comments after my comment were circling the wagons and talking about how when the prophet speaks um the thinking's done um you know those yeah. those kind of comments but afterwards i had um several different women catch me in a corner to whisper to me right. that they felt the same way i had an anonymous yeah. note passed to me say thanking me for asking that our that our sisters um in ordained women were spoken of with respect and for me, I needed to be able to speak my truth to be in a faith community that could sustain me. Um, and those two experiences on the same day um, made it very clear that I that I was a rebel, <laughs> and and that and that in one place I could speak those truths right out loud and be welcomed, um, be welcomed and be valued, and in another place. If I wanted to um, fit and stay comfortable, I was going to have to silence those parts of myself, and I couldn't do it anymore. Wow! Wow! What a what a day! <laughs> oh my gosh! Was- and I'll just say, I'll just say, you know, from my perspective, to well, I was about to say, you're not a rebel to to be real, <laughs> but at the same no, I- time. There is something subversive about telling the truth, isn't there? There is. There is. <laughs> so, so interesting. Wow. So, John, you're watching all this unfold, and how are you taking it? Are you just heartbroken? Are you happy to see her flourishing? What What's going on? What's going on for you? Um, I was, you know, trying to understand her. Mm-hmm. Because um, that day... We had the same lesson in Elders Quorum. They they brought up the same thing, and I, I was someone said something about ordained women in there, and I just kind of pointed out in a very faithful way <laughs> that 
we don't need to just outright dismiss them all because there are very real concerns behind this and there are very faithful women in our church who have these problems and I pointed out that you know Joseph Smith did ordain uh, he when he organized the Quorum of the Anointed he did ordain the women in there and so there is legitimate stuff behind this and women used to give blessings I don't remember everything I said but it, something like that that kind of kept it positive in the lesson and it went from there um, overall um, I kind of had to come to I had to come to some point where I could deal with this and I I was getting Getting more into church history, I was listening to um, a lot. I was going through the back catalog of Mormon stories and trying to find, find all the faithful interviews. Um, mm-hmm. Listening into, you know, I spread out. I started listening to Mormon Matters, Thoughtful Faith, Mormon discussion. Mm-hmm. To them. Yep. Um, I wrote a letter to one of the apostles asking him for answers on some issues that I just could not find an answer for as I would comb through conference talks. And I got a response. <laughs> yeah, and I got a response. And wow. I had asked him four questions. And one thing he said, I, I was asking, one of them was about further revelation on some things. And he said that we're trying so hard to understand the will of the Lord now that we don't really push the envelope on future revelations. And then of the four questions I asked him, Three of them, his answer was, we don't know about that, but when we, the, the Lord will reveal in his own time what we should know about that. And it was just kind of, eh. Mm, not satisfying. It was not a satisfying letter. And I, I just, I, I decided to just approach everything a little more objectively and just kind of ask, am I really sure? Am I really sure this is true? What if it isn't true? What if, what if there is another way? And, Gosh, I'm trying to remember what it was. What was what was it? I don't remember what it was now. The the thing that first really cracked my shelf. Oh, it was. I think you're talking about the YouTube video that you watched. Oh yeah, yeah. I was, I was watching this YouTube video of um a bunch of different people bearing their testimonies that the spirit had told them this is true. But one of them was a girl in a polygamy cult, and one of them was a guy bearing his testimony about Islam, mm. and one was some Pentecostal preacher, and then and then another one was the Heaven's Gate people. The way they yeah. were describing the Spirit, and if you just look at your feelings, the Lord will speak to you through your feelings, and you will know by the Spirit these things are true. And it was like, that is the exact same language we use, and that is the exact same reactions we get. So... I can't just rely on whatever we call the spirit because everyone relies on the spirit in one form or another and they get different answers. Mm. So it, I needed it to be verified by more than that. And I, you know, I, I came to a lot more nuanced view of the church and of my testimony. The, the more I really looked at church history, the more I had always kind of believed that the prophets and apostles had seen Christ, and the language they used heavily implies that they have. And now it's pretty clear most of them haven't. And so it, I was able, it kind of settled in my mind that, yeah, there is a chance this isn't true. 
And if so, then, and if that's the case, then, then I don't really have anything to worry about with us. And then also I got to the point where if it is true, it's not true in exactly the same way I had thought it was. And I still think we'll be fine. So Mm. I've kind of come to that place where it's okay. (laughs) So you really just, you, you, you deconstructed your faith a lot. It sounds like, and, and looked at it, but it, it also sounds like, I mean, you still retain a, a faith in the LDS church. Is that, that's right, right? You're still active and yep. participating just with, with a, perhaps a bit more nuanced perspective than you did before. Right. And do you think that coming to that place of, <clears throat> of nuance and of, being able to accept some of the ambiguity um, has been important in your relationship with Monica has, you know, how has that, how has that impacted how you relate with each other about faith? Well, I always felt like we had one of the best marriages and this having this come between us was really difficult. Mm. And so my determination was, got to figure out how to make this work because we're not getting divorced. We love each other. And I just had to get to a place mentally where I could move forward, where I could still see some kind of future. Uh, I remember a comment John made when we were very first newly married. Um, um, John said something to the effect of, I am never getting divorced. The only things that could ever um, threaten that are abuse, adultery, or apostasy. Oh, wow. Um, and so as I was uh, feeling this incredible peace in this faith community that I'd found, I was also fighting with this incredible discord within my soul because those three A's, kept reverberating through my head and I was scared. I was scared to even bring it up to say anything because my marriage and my husband are, they are the core of my life. Um, And now after, after wrestling with this for months and many, many very tearful conversations, um, I finally brought back up to him. I said, and I, I repeated this story Um, And he took me by the shoulders and he said, Monica, I don't know what this all means, but we're going to make it through together. And I remember falling apart and then hugging very tightly for a long time and thinking, "Okay, we can. I don't know what it means, but we can make it through. And at that point, um, I I knew I knew all all along that this was causing my husband pain, that I was yeah. hurting him, um, mm-hmm. that these choices were agonizing to him because he had an absolute literal belief in the sealing powers of the temple. Um, and what he was seeing was those ties to me, his wife, whom he loved so much, um, crumbling um and and while i i didn't see it that way yeah um i knew that he did and whether or not 
we believed the same, I knew that he was hurting. Um, and I didn't want to hurt him. Um, and I wanted to be authentic and true to myself and, and to follow my own peace. And that, that line was so hard to walk for, for a very long time. And just having the assurance that, that according to him, we were going to make it through together was, um, gave me a lot of comfort. And I think, wow. I think one of the, one of the things that has carried us through is that John has seen and recognized the pain of my faith transition as I was going through that, um, that dark night of the soul. Um, mm-hmm. he didn't understand it, but he saw me in pain and he loved me through it. And when I was coming out to this place of peace um, and recognizing that the place of peace was going to be different than Mm -hmm. where we were when we joined in marriage, I could see the pain that he was going through um, and recognized his pain. And rather than hardening ourselves against the other person's differences, recognizing and being open to feeling pain with the other partner has been key so um so what i'm hearing is that empathy has been absolutely vital um to coming through this but let me ask you a question what do you think it is about your relationship or even your own you know personal journeys and inner journeys that have allowed you to not harden because I think that that's the key as well. I really do. I think if there's one thing that's kind of the most important thing that you can do or way that you can be in these times of difficult transition, it's, it's the ability to see where the other person is coming from even if you don't fully understand it, but recognizing how real it is for them, even if, even if the worldviews are different. But I think a lot of times we, and by that I mean human beings, are so worried about being right and so worried about justifying our own positions that we can't give that room, we can't give that space. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if you would talk a little bit um, both of you, if you would reflect just a little bit on what was it either about your relationships or about your own internal processes or, or both that allowed you to meet such profound difference with love and empathy? Well, we, I mean, we've always had a really good marriage anyway. Um, and we've been through a lot together. We had, you know, we've, Buried two children. Yeah. We've had our own trials of different things with kids and finances and just different things that we've been through. Um, when it came to that, I mean, there were some rough times. I remember there was a conversation or two where I think we were both angry and needed to just kind of separate and type it out because 
you know, there was one point where she had brought up the thing I had said about I would only leave on cases of abuse, adultery, or apostasy. And I thought if she had that in her head and she was still willing to leave the church, did uh. what did that what did that mean on how she saw us? Um, yeah. But we've we've always been pretty good about taking care of each other, striving to make the other person happy, striving to make sure the other person is doing okay. Um, and with that, so when we came to this new place, it was a it was a foreign place for us, but. Our marriage has always been the highest priority for both of us. I think um, one of the things that really um, has helped is that that we we talk and we talk. Um, no, it's not just talking. It's sometimes it's talking and sometimes it's writing. And there have been really difficult conversations that are too painful to continue face to face. Um, and, but just because they're too painful to continue face to face doesn't mean we stop communicating. We find, we, we take some time out and come back to it. We, um, you know, write it out. We send emails to each other. We text and we find an avenue of communication because I think if we stopped talking to each other, we would lose our empathy for each other. Um, mm. then it, then it would be because it, it would be focused on me and what I feel and what I see. And if I'm not open to hearing what John's experience is, um, then it becomes very, uh, one-sided. Mm. Um, it, it also, I think it also helped for John to be willing to, like he said, I mean, he, he, he didn't he didn't come to all of this and and burn all of my books <laughs> that were disturbing to him and i've heard right. I've heard tale of of um other couples where that is the response the the response is one couple throws away the enzymes and the other couple throws away the um the church history books they find disturbing um wow and and it, it i'm i'm on a i'm in a forum with um uh, with couples where one is a believing member of the LDS church and the other is not. And it's, this mm-hmm. is all the former Mormons. And there, there are a lot of, um, unkind things that are done out of fear, um, yeah. I believe. And so instead of throwing those books away or even, um, challenging, uh, me reading about, reading Rustone Rolling or, um, other things that might be concerning, John decided to read those same things um, and try to come to an understanding. Now, it, I, I mean, it did initially start with um, John was going to read about Brigham Young because um, obviously I had no problem with Joseph Smith because both traditions came from, um, uh-huh. from Joseph Smith. So he started reading about Brigham Young thinking maybe he could find that, that gem that would be convincing enough um and didn't because <laughs> he's a crazy pants Brigham Young's a crazy pants <laughs> he's, he's, yep <laughs> i'm not fond of brother brigham 
he was a man of his. Oh, he was a man I'm of just his... teasing, by the way, John. Calling <laughs> 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 anyway. Well, and and even like yeah. near the beginning, I remember John saying, "Okay, if you'll just go to the temple three times, just go to the temple with me three times." And if you go three times and you don't feel better about all of this, then I'll let it go. Um, mm-hmm. And it was it was really, really difficult for me to go to the temple under those circumstances. Sure. Um, but but my response was, OK, if this is what he needs to understand yeah. that I because I didn't I really didn't want anybody thinking that I just fell away. Because I desperately tried to hang on. And so, um, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted it to be understood, particularly by my husband, that I did everything that I could and I could not make it work. So. Yeah. Wow. And, and it, I mean, and we did come to a, to a piece that probably the hardest conversation we had. Um, that, that January when the ward time changed and, and I had to choose, I couldn't be doing both. I had to choose. Um, that, that led to the question of what happens with our children? Yeah. How do we know we had, uh, eight children at the home at the time and what do we do, um, about our children? And that was, a tearful, silence-filled, um, you know, long pauses conversation um, in our driveway, yeah. in the car, um, trying to figure out how best to um, to navigate this as a family. That it wasn't just me and him; it was me and right. him and these beautiful children that we have in our care. Um, what what we ended up um, doing is letting them um, choose the place that they wanted to go. And for a while we said, okay, you know, go, go for a month at a time, choose this month where you will go. But at Mm -hmm. this point they, we have some kids that um, appreciate uh, what happens in community of Christ and Mm -hmm. some children who really appreciate um, what happens in the LDS church. And, um, we're okay with that. Wow. And so how did you get, John, how did you get to a place of being okay with like the kids making a, a different choice? Talk, talk, uh, talk about that process. Is it sort of the same theological shifts that you made to get to a place of being okay with Monica's difference that, that sort of carries over to the yeah. kids or, there was a lot of fear about that, too, because I just had yeah. this vision of, okay, if she leaves the church, then most of my kids aren't going to have a strong testimony or yep. foundation, and who knows what they yep. grow up into. Right. But with me, it, I, I mean, at first it was just, it was like, okay, mom's going to go to her church, but kids, we're all going to still go to ours, and, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, it, I, it, it, it was a matter of when, when I kind of had my own shift was when it, it mm-hmm. became okay that the kids can pick wherever they want to go. Right. And I, I wonder because I think, I, I wonder, John, if you would share a little bit about how you put it together then. 
Um, because I think that maybe for some of our listeners, uh, possibly, you know, spouses who might be in a similar place to where you were, um, how, how do you put, how do you put being okay with that together in a faithful LDS context? I think that might be really helpful to some people. Well, hmm, how to answer that? How do I say this? I don't believe the LDS church is the one true church in that it has all the truth and all the other are abominations before him. Okay. Um, and growing up, I thought that I, you know, hey, mm-hmm. this is so awesome. We have the truth. Aren't we lucky? I am so lucky to have been born in this church and be one of the few people on earth that gets to know the truth of what goes on in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm too, I realize that there are good people everywhere that we can take inspiration everywhere. And I really don't know. I really don't know what happens in the next life. I have faith in a lot of things, but I don't know. And the word no has kind of been annihilated because, you know, in the LDS church, when you bury your testimony, you're supposed to bury your testimony that you know this church is true, that you know this and that. Right. And we don't really know. I mean, I, I've i met two that I can think of who have, well, three. I've met three that I can think of who actually got to have that kind of heavenly experience where they saw Jesus either in a dream or a vision or something. And mm-hmm. each for each of those people, it was for a specific comfort for that time. But it wasn't they, here's some great universal truths I'm about to reveal to you. In fact, all mm. three of them were, were when the person was in deep distress and Jesus came to them to comfort them. Um, when I when I look at Joseph Smith's experiences, I think he had he was having deep wrestlings with what to do about the church, what to do about any church. But yeah, I also right. look at him at his time and what everyone was trying to figure out and what everyone was going through. And I recognize he had this deep spiritual experience. And I recognize that from that, he's been able to build up this great church or, you know, my, my line of the church, I think is this great thing. It's done a lot of good. I also recognize that it's got its problems and that one thing that it kind of suffers from is the encouragement of hero worship and the modern leaders. Right. I think there needs to be, you know, I have, I don't think I'm in the majority on how how I approach the church anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. It works for me. I'm happy with it. There's a lot of good there. There's a lot of truth there. Um, I really don't think we know as much as we think we do. Mm -hmm. And especially since I've, um, you know, I've, I've always been interested in church history, and I've always gone to it with a faithful slant, and when I went back and looked to it with a more objective slant, I just, you know, I recognize its problems, and a lot of its problems aren't that well-known within the membership, and that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm not going to automatically sustain everything that comes down from on high. I I had a real problem with the handbook changes a couple months ago. Yeah. And I've been trying to figure out a way to, you know, 
stop this. And I've, I've, I've been surprised how many people so quickly just accept it as being from the Lord. And I'm, no, this isn't. This is a policy change that wasn't well thought out and is actually not good. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe some people can take comfort in that. Maybe some faithful people will go like, well, I don't want to wind up like him. I don't know. But <laughs> right. it's it's still, I, I mean, I get a spiritual high from my elders' quorum and from the lessons we have there. And I enjoy, um, you know, listening to people's testimonies on Fast Sunday mm-hmm. and I, our our ward has been great. They've helped us a lot through the years. They have, yes. And that whole culture of helping is great. And, you know, I also know that if I ever got to the point where I just decided I just didn't believe in the church anymore, I know I could just wander over to community. <laughs> and they love me, you, have a, you have a soft place to land. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I am. I'm, I've, I've, I mean, my faith transition never would have, come if it wasn't for what Monica had gone through. I would be perfectly happy not really delving into everything one more time. I had to come to a point where I could mentally be in a place where I wasn't just cognitively dissonancing everything. And I've gotten to that point. And I just, I, you know, I know what I know. I believe what I believe. And I don't have to be all or nothing with anything. In fact, there was something, uh, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember the exact quote, but Gordon B. Hinckley once said, either Joseph Smith had the first vision and he restored the church, and this is one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world, or it's all a fraud. Yeah, yeah. And I don't accept that binary. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't accept that all or nothing mentality, because there is... Yeah. Because just logically, when you look at the world, if this, it, you know, God has let a lot of stuff just kind of happen. And I, and I think, I think people are a lot more in charge of their own destiny than they might think. And things are more, things are more complex, you know. Um, yeah. And, and more I think, simple. I think they're, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, if you just, if you can, if you can come to a place where you can accept the ambiguity and the humanness of the human condition, you yes. know, and, and, and you don't have to twist everything to fit, but you can just let it be what it is and be like, well, of course it doesn't all fit because we're human beings and we're flawed and that's, you know, that's kind of just the way it is, then I think you really can find a place of peace and a place of space. And in particular, um, if, you know, if the LDS church is a, is a, is a good fit for you, then I think all power to you and, and all grace and blessings, you know, be upon you and, and upon those who, who, who find that to be a good place. Um, because I think it really can be. I think it can really, really, really work for people. And I think that's yep. wonderful, beautiful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think, but I also think, you know, that sometimes those who have left want to make it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, I um, I think it was a beautiful thing, honestly, for me to have to go through my faith transition and my coming to um, find a home in another place while still maintaining my relationship with my um, very LDS husband. Um, it, it, I had to walk that line in a way that was very respectful and I'm now very grateful for, um, because I couldn't allow myself to devolve into bitter, angry, um, you know, spiteful places because that faith tradition is my husband's place and it's where he finds home. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And, and I think if, you know, speaking from a place of, of faith and a person, you know, coming from a faithful perspective, just, and speaking for myself, but if you can't, if you can't see God in that, mm-hmm. if you can't see God in the joy and the peace that it brings to people that you love, then You've just exchanged one idol for another. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because God is bigger and more loving and more transcendent and more amazing than that. And God can hold all of those different. He can hold he God. I don't necessarily think God is he. But anyway, God can hold all of those differences at the same yeah. time. I um, just like my experience with with my father and my youth friend, um, God speaks in different languages to different people right. because that's how they understand. Yes. Yep. And God speaks to my husband and my husband finds a good place in the LDS faith tradition. And that's where he does his best work and where I do my best work and find the most peace is in community of Christ. And I am so glad that we've been able to weather this. I feel like we're in a really good place. Uh, oh, that's awesome. In our space, in, in our faith traditions, our marriage, that it's all worked out for good. Wow, that's super awesome. Um, I have just loved this conversation. I really, really appreciate you guys sharing your story. Um, I think just hearing it, you know, I, I know everyone's story is unique and everyone's marriage is different and everyone brings their own set of troubles and their own set of baggage and their own hopes and their own dreams. But I think just hearing people in their own particularities share what they've been through and how they've made it work gives hope that there is a way to get through and a way to make it work. And the way that each person puts it together will be different. I think we'll need to do a few more of these interviews just kind of show, you know, how different people do it. Um, because it's really hard and at the same time it is possible. Yes. Um, yes. and, and, and God can be there and God's love can guide, you know, all of, all of the transitions and all of the difficulties and all of the differences. So, so in closing, I just, um, wanted to ask if there's anything else that you guys might want to add or anything that you didn't get a chance to say or any closing thoughts you'd like to share thoughts of hope for people who might be in a you know in a rough spot right now I my whole intention um with reaching out um to you to be able to tell our story in a more public way is 
is, as you said, to offer hope. Um, I know that in the middle of my faith crisis, I felt so alone. Um, and through those, those times of coming to understand each other and each other's journeys, um, there were really difficult places, um, really scary places. Uh, but I, I don't think we have to throw, um, the baby out with the bathwater, uh, and that communication is the key to being able to continue with empathy and with love and with a good, solid marriage in the face of a faith crisis. Thank you. John, any closing thoughts? Um, I just think our marriage is awesome. And <laughs> Me too. Just seems to always be getting better. Um, I just think that, um, I think that religion is a really sad thing to get divorced over. So, yeah. Um, you know, I hope people would never do that. And I know people do, but I would hope people could get past that and, and, and not make a big mistake over something like that. It kind of is the opposite of the point, you know? Yes. Well, yeah, there's that too. I mean, I when it, when I was thinking about how during the hard time, it just didn't seem right to let a family be broken up by different faiths when my faith was all about families can be together forever, and it's not about families can be together forever Unless one of you leaves, then we're just going to cut you off forever. That didn't <laughs> seem right, and it isn't right. I mean, I think I've, I'm a lot more. I mean, my my thing was always, oh, it'll all work out in the end. We'll we'll learn the truth on the other side. But that was out what my answer always was for like problems with the church. And now that's that's a deeper answer for me. It's like no. Really, <laughs> it will all work out. We will all learn the truth on the other side, and we should live our lives in a way that we shouldn't be positive. We have all the truth. That if you if you're convinced that you have all the truth, then you'll never learn. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate so much um, you coming on, and I hope that um, I hope that you'll. Stick around and check out um, ProjectZionPodcast.org and just see if we have any comments or questions from listeners um, that you guys would maybe be willing to go on there and answer anything that, that comes up and, and kind of engage in uh, comments or conversation afterwards. So um, <clears throat> I've just really, really enjoyed having you on and appreciate this episode a whole bunch. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening and we'll, we'll catch you next time. Fire will sing and will shout with the armies of heaven. This podcast is sponsored by the Latter day Seekers team from Community of Christ. The views expressed in this podcast are the opinions of those speaking 
and do not necessarily represent the views, beliefs, or official stance of Community of Christ or the Latter-day Seekers team. Men and birds.